Since 1971, Beautio Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for, and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello, it's the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick, your host. Before we get into this month in birding for August 2021, I want to follow up on a topic we discussed for the This Month in Birding, July 2021. There is no truth to the rumor that these episodes are just part of a bird news perpetual motion machine. That is just a nice byproduct. You might remember that we talked about the mysterious bird illness that was primarily centered on the mid-Atlantic, specifically the speculation that that illness might be associated with the brood 10 cicada emergence, which was also centered on the mid-Atlantic. So with that in mind, we turn to Scientific American, which recently ran an interview with Brian Evans, who's an ornithologist with the Smithsonian Institute. He specifically brings up the cicada theory, or perhaps more appropriately, the series of interconnected cicada theories. He says that that seems less likely now because some of the birds impacted by this illness have been found in places where the cicadas were not emerging. Though, admittedly, there is still a strong relationship between the brood 10 distribution and the mortality event. Uh, I just thought that was interesting. It's an update. It is by no means conclusive. The big takeaway is that the causes of this mortality event are still very much a mystery, though things seem to be waning as summer and breeding season for many birds comes to an end. We'll have to see next year if it returns, without the cicadas, obviously, or if we'll just have more mysteries. But enough about older bird news. Let's talk about some new bird news. It is this month in birding with a panel consisting of Molly Brown, Andres Jimenez, and Nick Lund. It's a lot of fun, and it is coming up after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the third week of August 2021. A couple first records to report this time around, neither of which are Tropical Storm Henri-related, just to get that out of the way. As far as wayward birds are concerned, Henri was a bit of a bust, though that does mean good things for the people in its path, so there's your silver lining. But a magnificent frigate bird photographed in Rockingham County, New Hampshire, represents a first for that state. What was presumed to be the same bird was seen later in Norfolk County, Massachusetts, south of Boston, though, of course, the likelihood that there really were two individuals cruising around ahead of the storm can't be completely discounted. And in North Dakota, a calliope hummingbird was seen visiting a feeder in Bismarck this week. This smallest of ABA area hummingbirds has become a somewhat regular winter wanderer in the east in recent years, owing as much to more aware birders as to increased late season feeding. But it always overshot North Dakota, finally, when put down at a place where a birder could find it. And a quick note of an ABA area rarity up in Quebec, a juvenile Common shell duck was observed by many in Sorel. For years, shell duck sightings were discounted as escaped birds, given the species' prevalence in domesticated menageries and whatnot. But regular sightings in eastern Canada and New England, especially in the fall and winter, seemed to match the species' growing breeding population in Iceland. 
into young birds seen at precisely the time one would expect dispersing juvenile birds is right on for a natural origin. That's all I have for you this week. For the entire roundup, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert every Friday at aba.org slash rba. You can also get the information as soon as it happens or thereabouts on our ABA Rarity Sharing Facebook group. That's ABA Rare Bird Alert. Or you can follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. It is the last week of August, and that means it is time for this month in birding. This month's panel contains some folks who are new to this space but perhaps not new to those who are keeping up with the growing birding podcast scene. Uh, so we've got some, some crossover energy this time that I am, I am excited for. So in alphabetical order, she is the founder of the Birding Co-op, co-host of the new Life List podcast, along with previous ABA podcast guests, Alvaro Jaramillo and George Armistead. So we had to get her on to complete the set. It's Molly Brown. Welcome, Molly. Thanks, Nate. Uh, he is the Urban Program Coordinator with Birds Canada and one of the hosts of Bird Canada's new The Warblers podcast. Hello, Andres Jimenez. Hola a todos y todas. Thanks for having me. Great. And finally, a good friend, the Birdist, back once again, currently patiently awaiting the arrival of Tropical Storm Henri and the arrival of his new ABA Field Guide to Birds of Maine. Welcome back, Nick Lund. Hi, Nick. Hello. Thanks for having me back. So how has your August been? Uh, I noted a few of us were on the road this month. Both Molly and, and Nick were out west. I got to travel to, to South America, which is very exciting. It was actually my first trip on an airplane since last February. Um, what have you seen? How is August a good month for for birding travel? Was it was it exciting to get out on the road again? Yeah, well, it's a, a good month to travel to Arizona. I can say that. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I, I went out to the Southeast Arizona Festival, which I've been many times before, but it never gets old. Yeah. Love seeing the birds out there. Um, and it was great. Uh, the most rain that I've I've ever seen in Arizona and everything is super green right now. Everything's blooming. So it, it was just fun. Um, I also went out with no target birds and just seeing what I got to see and kind of picking the places and getting to see a lot of friends that I haven't seen in a long time too. Yeah. So it was quite relaxed and enjoyable and always fun to be out there. Yeah, that's really cool. I saw some of the pictures uh, that people were posting from Arizona uh, on social media and it is so green. Like I didn't even recognize it. It's pretty nuts how quickly it, it greens up once the rain starts. Yeah, it was fast. Very cool to see. And I went to Olympic National Park in Washington, which was stunning. Huge old growth forests and moody, foggy beaches like I'd never seen before. Uh, and I we just had a great time. My wife and I went out and perhaps most notably, uh, my mom took our uh, three-year-old for the whole week. So, uh, <laughs> you know, we could have been staying at a gas station in New Jersey the whole time and still had a wonderful, uh, relaxing time. <laughs> so I highly recommend everyone going out and getting out to Olympic if you can. It's a stunning place and with forests that really, you know, don't exist many other places. Um, so uh, check it out. Yeah, I was in uh, I was in Columbia. I won't talk too much about it because I'm planning on producing some podcast stuff for it. But uh, oh man, it is so good to travel again, even if you have to wear a mask most of the time. <laughs> and uh, it's just amazing. One of my favorite places in the world. Lots lots of great birds. Lots of cool up cool experiences. Were were people being okay on your planes? So we had a guy get arrested uh, for the for most part. Wow, on, on the plane, yeah. Yeah, I was I was impressed by how uh, how strict they were in Colombia uh, compared to how lax we are <laughs> up here. Um, they wouldn't even let me get 
uh, in the in the airport when I was coming home with my cloth mask, I had to get like one of those surgical disposable masks to wear the whole time. Yeah, you know, it makes you feel a little bit safer, I suppose, that they're taking it that seriously. Uh, yeah, we didn't have any issues on the plane though. No big dust ups, no no Good. YouTube videos or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I was wearing noise canceling headphones, so I didn't hear the big argument, but <laughs> it was uh, there was a a tussle. People are. <laughs> You know, I want to start with a study that came out in uh, PLOS One. It comes from a, a group of Polish researchers. And I admit that I, I probably like the title more than the actual study itself, uh, which is not just a hobby, but a lifestyle, characteristics, preferences, and self-perception of individuals with different levels of involvement in birdwatching. It's, it's essentially just a, an attempt to kind of quantify how you know, into birding people are. And then basically comes out and says, different people who are into birding in different ways have different expectations for the hobby, which is, I don't know, seems like one of those things that's extremely uh, self-evident <laughs> to those of us who are involved in the community. Uh, I'm curious about what your thoughts are versus bird birder versus bird watching. It sort of drags up that, that old issue once more. Um, is there a difference between birders and bird watchers? Do we need to treat them differently when we're talking about bird tourism or bird culture or bird, any of that stuff? What, do you, what, what are your thoughts? Do you care whether someone calls you a birder or a bird watcher? So I was fascinated by the study, but because of a different reason, I was a bit lost on them trying to bring this words lifestyle or hobby, like if it was <laughs> something that they would go deep into, which yeah. they don't. They yeah. don't have a difference of what's a lifestyle, what's a hobby. It's just there on the title and then at the <laughs> end in the conclusions and you go like, but but what you're telling me is that they're doing this activity regularly and that's also what they do in a lifestyle and then that's also what they do in a hobby. What's, right. what's the difference? Yeah. The Venn was, diagram is a big overlapping circle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. I was super lost by this, but I was fascinated about the scale of birdwatching involvement mm -hmm. because I think if that is expanded a little bit to include conservation, it could be super useful into understanding people's motivations, particularly yeah. when you start trying to step away from hardcore birders and traditional scales relied on how many bird species can a person identify right. to see if they right. were newbies or intermediate or, or if they were hardcores. And so I, I kind of like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I definitely think that the, you know, the old traditional metrics of like, how big is your life list is not, you know, it's not particularly useful. It's like, how much do you care about birding? How much do you enjoy it? How much time do you spend? Yeah. Particularly because a lot of the people enjoying birds that I've seen during the pandemic are more enjoying photography, for example, yeah. than actually identifying birds. And so I did see that there is a nuance on how they are understanding the interest. I think it's worth noting in that article, too, that the study was conducted in Poland. Yeah. And I think even between Europe and North America, there are a lot of differences in how people perceive birding and bird watching and the terms they use as well. So that's a whole totally. other level to the complexity of it. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Maybe the difference between lifestyle and hobby is like uh, means more in Polish. I, I don't know. I don't speak Polish. I have no idea. <laughs> Connecting to that thing that Molly said, I, once, I found something really fascinating. Only a third belong to birding groups. Yeah. And I'm wondering if this is because it was in Poland and not mm. in the US or in yeah. Canada. Because in my North American mind, which is actually a bit tropical, <laughs> the majority of birders want to be in a club. And I was like, Okay, only a third. That's fascinating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
No, I, I, the touchstone I felt like for this study was that fish and wildlife study, the American fish and wildlife study from mm-hmm. 2011 or something that found a huge number of birders. And they had a very sort of expansive oh, definition of yeah. what birders was, which included, uh, I think the divisions they used were basically, you know, at home and leaving the home right. as two different. And I actually really like that definition. I like a very broad uh, definition of birder, you know, when I talk, when I do presentations or talk to people, you know, the majority of people are not sort of the hardcore lister birders, but that doesn't mean they're any less interested. They just are finding their own way or, or just enjoying it the way they enjoy it. And so I, I prefer an expansive definition and I was really surprised to find, you know, that the, the Polish study estimated that only between three and 10,000 people in the whole country were birders. I feel like that's an that's an undercount as much as the maybe the millions in the fish and wildlife study was an overcount. But hmm. quickly to the point about lifestyle, you know, I I'm reminded of I had to get some blood work done a couple of months ago at a, at the doctor, nothing just standard stuff. And I remember going in and I took off my bird mask that had birds on it. I took I took <laughs> off my bird hat. I took off this sweatshirt with a bird on it to reveal a shirt that had a bird on it. I lifted up my arm to get a needle <laughs> and showed my bird tattoo. <laughs> He was like, the doctor was like, uh, you like birds, huh? Uh, yeah. And I, and I really think that, yeah, there is a life, it is a lifestyle, you know, it's a lifestyle as much as any hobby, uh, sort of is because you're always, I think it's because you're always birding, right? We talk about yeah. this a lot, mm-hmm. you know, every time you're outside, you're birding, you know, uh, it's not a hobby. It's sort of like a layer on top of your life. Yeah. Should that expand Definitely. the scale? Having bird tattoos should be like the, <laughs> yeah. the top level yeah. there. Yeah, I take yeah. bird photography. I feed the birds. I tattoo them on my skin. <laughs> permanent mark on your body. There are a few <laughs> higher right. levels of that. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And, and to tie this to another story that was getting some uh, traction uh, around the bird birdosphere uh, this month, does having birding as a lifestyle, you know, taking it as seriously as lifestyle implies, uh, mean that you have this certain ethical obligation towards birds and birding? Because there is, there was the story that came out. Uh, uh, based in Connecticut, about these photographers uh, out on a Connecticut beach who were photographing baby oyster catchers. You know, they stayed so close to the baby oyster catchers that the birds were kind of freaked out and the parents didn't come and they didn't feed them and they ended up, they ended up, the baby oyster catchers ended up dying because of this. You know, if you care about birds so much that you would consider this a lifestyle, do you have an extra ethical obligation to treat it in a different way than you might if you were just a bird feeder? But even people who are feeding birds are taking their feeders down these days because of this kind of mysterious illness. I'm tying this all these different bird stories in. Uh, <laughs> um, does that change things? I mean, I, I don't consider myself a photographer. I consider myself a birder first, but I do take photos. Um, d- does it matter? Does that stuff matter? You know, I hope that the ethics of birding and the ex- ethics of being a human in the world <laughs> transcend whether you consider yourself a birder or not. You know, the particulars of this Connecticut story are pretty nasty. You know, these photographers went and sat close and ignored a ranger who asked them to move back and told them they were too close. So it sort of, it it crosses the boundary from, you know, like self-policing, you know, ethics to really another conversation, which unfortunately we're having in this country, which is, you know, respect for authority and expertise and just ignoring uh, very clear guidance that (laughs) helps protect, you know, people or birds. Um, which is, uh, you know, unfortunately sort of a dominant theme right now. And it, it, it was hard for me not to read this Connecticut story and see unfortunate parallels. I, I hope that 
disrespect for rangers or ignoring, you know, very clear ethics is not something that grows in birding, although it has been around uh, for a long time. Yeah, it's sure we've all heard stories about people going a little bit too far. I think this is where I found the title, like clickbait. Um, <laughs> do you have a job that allows you to do more interactions with birds? Do you take purchasing decisions that are defined by this interest you have? Or have you treated your windows in order to save the birds and so you could see more? Um, it, it's not analyzing if people's lifestyles are being altered by this. Mm -hmm. It's just saying the motivation for them to watch birds. And so this is where I found the clickbait and <laughs> where I think this scale needs to be expanded because in the attempt to go outside of tourism studies, they end up being a tourism study because they narrowed this into bird watching as a tourism activity, not so much as a lifestyle like the title says. <laughs> I think that's all evidence that it would be valuable to be more inclusive and broad in our definition of who a birder or a bird watcher is. Yeah. Because I think that a feeling of belonging to that community increases your feeling of being obligated to stewardship. Big picture. I do. I have plenty of subjective views on it too, but I think objectively, <laughs> if the more birders or birders, bird watchers there are, the more awareness and the more economic impact. And those two things both do a lot of different things that lead to conservation measures, both like small scale locally, how you're interacting with the birds and in the bigger picture as well. Yeah. And I think this really ties into another news you're going to bring, the one with the owl. I'm going to save myself this <laughs> we'll, connection we'll save, we'll to tease that it. one. We'll tease it. We'll tease it. Mm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, and you know, obviously, we're, we're all sort of biased because all of us are sort of professionally involved in birds to some degree. So it is a lifestyle for us or whatever you want to, however you want to define that. I mean, it very much is. I mean, it's what we think about beyond the 40 hours a week that we're we're putting into birds. So, you know, maybe we're a little bit biased. Maybe it's a tough thing for us to discuss. But I do think there's a lot of people out there who are, you know, looking for ways to to make birding a bigger part of their life. And and obviously the goal is to to be more aware of conservation needs. And that's the dream, right? That's that's what we always say. You know, you get into birds and you become you start to care about their welfare. Let's talk about trash parrots. I like keep saying trash pandas in my head now, but <laughs> trash parrots are cool too. I do want to know why you chose that that news. Well, let me tell you. <laughs> there were a few things that I thought were really interesting about this article. So this is about sulfur crested cockatoos in Australia and how they're learning to open trash can lids in communities. What was interesting was that they were learning in different methods in different neighborhoods. Yeah. So showing that this is a learned behavior that these birds are coming up with independently and teaching one another. The things that I thought were really interesting about this article, one is it, it is fun to read about cockatoos. They're fascinating in themselves. Um, two, uh, social learning is just really cool and apparent in so many different ways in birds. I did just a tad bit of research on it to prep for this and noted that one thing that makes birds really susceptible to this is that one, young are raised by their parents, usually for several weeks. And then birds also interact with other species a lot, both just in everyday interactions and mixed flocks. So they learn not only generationally, but also from similar and other species around them too. I think that the most obvious way that I think 
I see this on a daily basis is different dialects of bird sounds. Yeah. And like I said, I just got back from Arizona and Cardinals in the West sound so different than Cardinals yeah. in the East. Yeah. You have to like dial your, your ear in every time. But then the third thing that I thought was cool about this article was that a lot of studies on social learning are done on birds in captivity. A couple mm. scientists in Australia used community science, so people in these neighborhoods and urban areas, to gather data on this. So I thought it was a really cool way to see the public get to contribute to um, science in this way. And then I was also thinking uh, how much opportunity there, there is in urban areas because there are more people in concentrated areas yeah. to contribute to community science. So all of that, I thought it was a cool article all the way around. Obviously all of that, but also sort of uh, less scientifically inclined. Trash parrots sounds to me like they would fit into like a early 80s lineup at CBGBs or something. You know, <laughs> Talking heads, Debbie Harry, trash parrots. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know, parrots are so cool just in general. Because I think that their their cognitive abilities are well beyond what we even think. And uh, the fact that they figured this out, I mean, probably you guys have heard of the story of like the, the blue tits in the UK and how they famously were able to go to the milk jugs and, and peck the little aluminum foil tops and eat the cream that was, uh, you know, at the top of these hmm. um, milk, you know, back when people had milkmen that would bring milk to you every day. Um, they figured that out. This is like that, except with a giant plastic trash lid um which is a pretty impressive you know physical feat for any bird let alone a you know a, a sulfur crested cockatoo which is a big parrot but you know Super still big. they're yeah. still uh you know that's a heavy lid hmm. yeah My looking at the pictures sometimes yeah i mean these are big <laughs> trash cans yeah right <laughs> now the study it was like a hundred some birds and mm -hmm. like nine of the ones that they tagged and followed were successful. So it's not that everyone was doing it. Um, they got into some interesting things on how it was mostly male birds and how they were protective over them and a lot of other intricacies of cockatoo social interactions. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it, it's not that every cockatoo is now prying open every garbage can lid, <laughs> um, but some are learning and I, I guess more and more are learning. <laughs> yeah. This has to be the prettiest trash bird <laughs> ever right i imagine living in a neighborhood where sulfur crested cockatoos are are raiding your trash bins yeah <laughs> and you just sit and it's that's like you know feeder watch right you, you just yeah, look right. at tr trash watch right yeah and there was a crowd of cockatoos looking at the other ones doing it and waiting for their turn that was the, the best video ever <laughs> and this only happens in a place that doesn't have raccoons or bears right because yeah, then they don't have true. the right mm -hmm. trash cans and so yeah. <laughs> it's mm. a kind of a niche there that can be taken by <laughs> no other thing niche. than yeah cockatoos mm. right it's magnificent you know i love stories of birds learning how to adapt in human environments Andres mentioned, you know, bird feeders. This is essentially a bird feeder, right? What's the difference? It's just a big <laughs> container full of food for these birds. I'm, That's right. I do bristle a little bit at the the phrase trash parrot. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's a, it is a good clickbait term, but I want to make sure that it's followed up by trash humans for all the time. We're the ones <laughs> putting this on the, we're, we're putting it out there. Because it's not very healthy food, eh? No, no probably, probably not. not. Yeah. So I, you know, I know trash panda is a raccoon term that, um, you know, and I want to denigrate them. I, we need to be denigrated for putting all this trash on the landscape to begin with. Absolutely. On that note, there was 338 reports. This means these people were watching at their trash cans yeah. for a very long time. <laughs> yeah. And 
with bins, you know, looking at the cockatoos were coming and then taking videos. But this is kind of a good segue connecting to the next story, which I won't say which one is it. But <laughs> You're really ready this, to tease these stories, Andres. In this episode, <laughs> I think there's a lot of YouTube video, yeah. uh, public research-oriented things happening. And it makes me so happy that the ways we do research are not only being challenged, but enriched by the collaboration of multiple people taking ownership of the things around them. And I think for me, that's what I saw in all these stories. It's like a lot of ownership. Yeah. And that makes me feel super hopeful. And I really hope that more people with, will own and steward the things around them. So it tied into the last thing we talked about. Are the people videotaping these cockatoos? Are they birders? <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Sure, why not? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Sure. You put it in the scale. They participated on research, right? That's on right. That yeah, that's that actually pretty far down. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> super biologists. far down. Yeah, and I've met many scientists that do research with birds, and they don't define themselves as birders or listed. Yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. And that's yep. something that kind of made a short circuit in my brain. So where are these guys that are actually producing research on birds and that they go like, yeah, no, what's that bird? No, I only know piping plovers. Mm. The rest are kind of like a mystery to me. <laughs> it's true. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely true. Given that we're on a roll and we're connecting with the pre previous story, I loved the story of the birds stealing hair from mammals. And because of many reasons, one is YouTube based. Yes, you heard it right. It's YouTube based. And it also brings a little bit of jargon, you know, that you could use in that, those coming cocktails parties when we start getting together with our <laughs> friends in barbecues and stuff like that. The word is, and please English speakers pronounce it for me, kleptotricky. That sounds right. Sounds right. How yeah. would you say it, Molly? I think that's perfect. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> for those that speak Spanish, kleptotricia. And so these are little birds stealing hair from mammals that include raccoons, dogs, humans, and cats. Cats. Cats who kill 10 to 4 times more animals than wild predators. And birds are stealing hair from them. And even humans. When I read humans, I was like, yeah, now how, how do they know they steal hair from humans? Have they like done genetic testing or whatever? But no, there was a YouTube video of a tufted titmouse plucking a bold patch of hair in a, in a woman after so much curly hair it got. And so a group of scientists, including a professor from the University of Illinois named Mark Hubbard, studied these videos and they were fascinated on the risk that birds are taking in order to gather hair from mammals. Because we used to assume, and I bet all of us here assumed that before, that they were just gathering the hair from either carcasses or shedded hair. But no, these guys are plucking it from predators. <laughs> yeah. And the study found more evidence on YouTube than it did on the literature. Wow. Yeah, because people just videotaped it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That they went into a literature and there was nothing on it. But they went to YouTube and it was full of videos of birds taking hair from golden retrievers and curly hair mm -hmm. ladies. <laughs> the audience of the videos is another jewel. There was one audio in the background of the murder of O.J. Simpson and how the lawyer had to rethink about all of this. So this puts another layer of interest into this. But the other thing that was fascinating, not only how research is challenged, is why they do it, right? There's as many yeah. as, you know, 20 theories that could happen. But the three leading things that these guys were thinking about was insulation, 
the mammal smell, right? To hide the nest or to scare other potential predators. And then mm -hmm. a sacrificial offering to lice and mites, right? Instead of them chewing on the feathers, they could chew on the hair. Mm -hmm. And all of that was just remarkable. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah, I've, I've never actually seen this behavior, but like, uh, like I'm sure some of you, I've, I've seen the videos every once in a while, they get passed around. The fact that someone is, is putting a critical eye to it and, and a scientific mind to it is really interesting because it's, 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 it's a pretty wild behavior when you think about it. And it makes sense that it would be tufted titmice and chickadees and those kind of birds really driving this because they are, they're nuts. They're like the evil Knievels of, uh, <laughs> of birds. Like there's no danger too extreme for them. But tufted titmouse looks so cute. And what is the <laughs> plural for tufted titmouse? Oh yeah. Titmice, titmouses. Oh, I have no idea. Yeah, I don't know. I, I love stories like this and really the, the cockatoo story we just did because y you see the world through different eyes. You know, these birds are not seeing the world through human eyes. They're seeing not a, a dumpster full of smelly trash, but a delicious, you know, like difficult to open burrito, you know, and then these titmice <laughs> are are seeing, you know, some dog walk by not or maybe as a predator, but also as like, a ooh, that's a potential nesting thing and they have to, you know <laughs> plan this plan these heists these little bird heists um i would love to film some of these set to like you know spy movie music or oceans 11 music where they're like you distract him and then you you know you do a display and then i'll go grab the the hair um you know they see the world differently and i i i like that because every species does you know yeah it makes me wonder how much they were doing this before you know, there was so much opportunity for it, you know, before there were cats and dogs and, and all over the place, or even things like raccoons coming to feeders or living in urban environments. We're tough to tip out stealing from fur bears. From, from bears. Yeah, right. Or, or, or uh, you know, bobcat or gray fox or whatever they might encounter or white-tailed deer or whatever. Um, I mean, you have to assume that maybe they were. Mm -hmm. Is there evidence in these videos of uh, failed attempts, like a cat <laughs> whipping around and grabbing him? I mean, it, yeah. is it, do we assume there is? Okay, so it's not there just is, sort of assumed to be dangerous, but is actually... There is a raccoon it, that gets super annoyed at a tufted titmouse and starts just throwing that, swipes at it. There's yeah. also a lazy golden retriever that doesn't realize of anything happening. Right, sure. you know? right. It might feel good, you know? Yeah, <laughs> I, I have a lazy dog who's had this happen to him. Really? Um, he just, yeah, which he doesn't have long hair. He's trying really hard to have a cameo in this podcast. So you, you <laughs> might hear him on here. Um, but he just used to lay on the porch and just sleep near the feeders. So he was kind of just always a presence there. Yeah. And they came down a few times. But these articles do all connect together because I'm curious how learned this is. Yeah. And is this happening you know, in a widespread, well, it's widespread, yes, but are yeah. they learning this independently or how, how does this happen? Yes. Right. I have no yeah. answers. <laughs> yeah, right. No, yeah. And the method of research, if you get to see the background mm -hmm. of research and how it happens. Yeah. And both articles are a friend that shows another video, a friend like you and I could do. Mm -hmm. And then they decide to start hunting for other videos taken by people randomly. And then they look at it with a scientific eye and with the rigorosity that is required to get it out there in the scientific community. And I find that absolutely fascinating because you get to see the background of science. Yeah. But I also wonder about the implications. Do I go and take a, get a haircut and then bring it out and put it next to the feeder? <laughs> Should I throw it out in the yard? Am I helping the birds by providing hair? You know, there's yeah. a lot of things to think about here. I have heard that people mm -hmm. are sort of discouraged from putting like long hair out. 
uh, because uh, it can get like kind of tangled in the in the nestlings, mm. like, like like fishing line or something like that. But like short hair, like shearing your pet or or whatever, like put that stuff out there, and they'll they'll find a use for it. I shave every morning, so I just <laughs> just toss it. In those toss things. it. Yeah. <laughs> Might be too small. Might be too small. <laughs> I'll let them decide. Some sad news out of New York City. A female barred owl um, called Barry, uh, because it's barred, uh, showed up in Central Park, New York City, uh, in October, last October, and was a uh, apparently a very confiding bird and was seen by who knows how many, many, many people in new york um we've all seen owls in the wild before it's an awe-inspiring and unforgettable experience and so this berry uh, brought a lot of joy to people and was a beloved friend in the park to many it passed away recently uh there was some sort of interaction in the middle of the night with a uh a park maintenance truck resulting in the death of the bird and uh it was mourned by there's more than 200 people showed up to the little service they had and uh many more uh were sort of saddened it was big news uh as seemingly every bird story from central park is <laughs> um I, I i truly mourn the bird i feel bad for the people uh who lost a friend you know, my my semi-cynical take is that, you know, this is what happens with birds in urban areas. It's a dangerous place, uh, whether we think uh, of Central Park as being wild. Uh, it's it's not. It's in the huge city and there are lots of people and vehicles nearby. Um, and so animals die a lot, whether by sort of human caused or natural causes. And so, you know, I'm uh, this story... It, you know, it's a sad one, and I'm glad so many people were inspired by it. I hope some other people are inspired to continue to see birds and seek them in their uh, in other habitats. But otherwise, I, I I try not to sort of draw larger connections. I think from this story, uh, because um, this is what happens in urban centers. This is what people do when they are when they build huge built cities around habitat, is that they uh, they make it dangerous for birds. So um, R.I.P. to Barry and. That's all. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're you're right. Birds get struck by cars fairly regularly. It's, it's a real problem. Um, the question of whether or not the people, the Central Park workers, should have been driving as quickly as they were. I mean, obviously, we don't even know how fast they were driving. It's quite possible that it was not very fast at all. People were quick to assume the worst uh, for them, and and maybe that's justified. Maybe it's not. Like I, I have no idea. But yeah. The way that barred owls hunt, you know, you're not supposed to throw like apple cores and, and you know, biodegradable trash out your windows on highways um, because I, I, I stopped doing that once I heard this um, because that attracts rodents. And then you've got barred owls and other owls and raptors kind of hunting near cars where they're susceptible to this sort of thing. It happens a fair bit. And yeah, I, I don't really know what else to say other than. You know, Central Park certainly loves its raptors. I'm thinking of... of and ducks. And ducks. <laughs> yeah. A lot of Central Park bird stories. My, my, probably my, hot, take, my hot take so is that many. I want a moratorium on Central Park birding <laughs> stories. I feel like every week I have to have some opinion on something that happened in Central Park. And, that, and there are a lot of other great places to bird. There are a lot of other places that people are birding. I'm, 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 I have had my fill of Central Park stories, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to wonder how many people 
feel a connection to birds because of the Central Park stories. That's, That's exactly I'm coming it. from a very rural area, but that was a beautiful article that was in the New York article. Times that yeah. was obviously quite heartfelt. So I don't feel a connection to Central Park stories myself either, but it seems like a lot of people do. And I think that's pretty cool is looking at the social implications of it. There's always a lot of drama around Central Park and Central Park bird stories and the Central Park birding community. Um, for better or for worse, uh, I do appreciate the fact that, that it is sort of a, a spotlight on birding and it's certainly an opportunity for people to get into birding. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, feel for, I feel for Barry. I feel for the Central Park birders that cared about it. It is always cool to see barred owls. This connects to the to one of the stories at the beginning because it makes me think about stewardship and ownership. And I think all mm. the stories this this episode were about that, right? People just connecting with the animals around them. Yeah. With cockatoos and barred owls. And it makes me think about something that happened in Toronto. There was a barred owl in a very popular park called Downsby, and it was full of photographers. And since I came to Canada, I've been dragged into this constant argument and constant <laughs> warning of we hate photographers and we don't like for them to harass the birds and we yeah. won't share information and information should be kept super secret so people do not go to this species at risk and the places they they nest yeah owls always seem to be at the center of that sort of thing too <laughs> and yeah. i've been trying to understand why this bothers me because it it really bothers me and i this story brought evidence to why it bothers me and why I think it should be challenged. I don't think the question is, should we share information? I think the question is, how should we share this information? Because mm. we should always share this information with who? With the stewards, with the community around these birds, because if they don't know that they're there, they can't do anything. Like yeah. the photographers with the, the oyster catchers. They didn't listen to a park ranger, but what about if the community would have been there and would have tell them not to do it? Or what if they were taught by the community on how to observe these birds? And I always think that for someone to be a steward, we need to trust them and we need to accept them. And what do I mean by that? They, if they create a connection like the hundreds of people that connected with this owl, then they will be stewards, but we need to trust them with the information and we yeah. need to trust that they will do a good thing. And if they don't know about the places and the birds, they won't have an option to support them and protect them. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, especially because we're talking about in this pandemic, this this big rise of new birders. It's so many new birders coming in to our community who perhaps were not in it before and they've discovered birding because it's a wonderful pandemic hobby. Um, well, we have an opportunity, perhaps we have an obligation as people who have been in this community for a long time to model good behavior, to teach yeah. them when we can, to use things like the podcast that we that we all that we're on to <laughs> encourage people to to do the right thing when it comes to those birds. And so people feel more comfortable sharing that stuff. Um, it is it is weird how owls are always in the middle. And I think in the middle of it, and I think that that's partly because of the way owls act, like you see them in the daytime and they tend not to be bothered by a lot. Like they'll sit mm -hmm. tight for a long mm -hmm. time and people can get up relatively close to them and take photos of them. And it, that's all very exciting. Um, but, you know, we have an opportunity to, to or perhaps an obligation to model good behavior and, and teach people how to, how to live with the birds around us in a way that, that is healthy for all of us. And for the talking birds about well. opportunity, the article misses an opportunity. 
Mm. It doesn't bring accountability. It doesn't yeah. say why there was a collision. It doesn't yeah. say how the community is trying to avoid this for the future owl. And that yeah. is for me a big miss on the article. That's true. Yeah, it almost others the people who hit the hit the owl. You know, they're the ones that made the mistake and we're the ones who are right and correct and and yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. It's very much like, well, these things happen and not questioning why or yeah. how you prevent it. But I am curious, do you all have any examples of like a local celebrity bird that you've had near you? Hmm. Yeah, actually, and it's a barred owl. <laughs> Um, there's oh, really? a pair of barred owls. <laughs> yeah, they've nested. There's a there's a park that's uh, relatively close to downtown. It's a little tiny postage stamp kind of a park called the Bog Garden here in my city. And uh, there have been a pair of barred owls that have nested there for as long as I've lived here, and that's almost ten years now. And yeah, people go and they see them and they they hang out there. And there there are some busy roads that run on either side, at least two of the sides of that park. Uh, but people come and they see the owls and they take photographs of them. And especially when they have chicks on the nest, they're really active even during the day. Hmm. Um, my, my kids have seen them. I've seen them several times. It's, it's neat. Hmm. For, for us in Maine, it was the great black hawk, oh, yeah. uh, which was, you know, the first hmm. ABA record individual, uh, stayed in an urban park in yeah. Portland, Maine for, for several months. And, you know, that attracted huge attention from birders and uh, sort of looky-loos and regular people who were just walking through the park. I know that um, Maine Audubon, my colleagues, you know, Doug Hitchcocks and others um, put a lot of effort into making sure that um, there was information about how to keep the birds safe and how far to stay away and sort mm -hmm. of... Um, yeah, they did a great job. Were, were, was, ...was sort of gently but effectively um, making sure that people, you know, gave it the space it needed. And, um, you know, that bird did not survive, but it was not uh, because of human interaction, it was yeah. because Maine is, it was freezing cold and not a place <laughs> for a tropical, tropical hawk to live for the winter. Um, but uh, overall, uh, and there may have been exceptions, but overall, the, the story on that bird was that uh, people were very respectful. And yeah, um, it was sort of, I think, a model of how to coexist with a, a celebrity bird in an urban environment. So in Costa Rica, it was putus what dragged oh, yeah. many people to go see them with awful interactions, by the way. Mm. Uh, people just kind of stroking the putu while he was terrified. Like, right? <laughs> I've, seen, I've yeah. seen those videos. Yes. Same thing Fish. with sloths. It's like every Ugh. single cute sloth video you, say, you see, it's a terrified <laughs> sloth. And then in Toronto, uh, Great Horn Owl at Hyde Park, they always nest there. And then the barred owl that was at Downsby Park and brought so many people, but they didn't get the status of celebrity as mm -hmm. red-winged blackbirds do. There's always a story of a red-winged blackbird oh, really? attacking people. Oh, yeah. Every yeah, spring. they're bad for that. <laughs> and I would say it's defending from people, in That's my right. opinion. How about you, Molly? Did you have a bird in mind? No, I actually don't. So <laughs> I'm glad you all had examples. Um, I will say I, I live in or have lived in pretty rural areas so that doesn't help but right. um uh, no, no nothing outside of like what the local birders know of like there was a green wing teal that kind of overwintered and mm -hmm. was just always around one of the spots that the birders knew about but that's not a bird that's easy to pick out or that is especially exciting right. when it's mixed in with a bunch of, like you know <laughs> no, domestic mallards or something <laughs> no no there there was that a duck is duck blushing in. somewhere that you considered it a celebrity right now it's like oh my goodness i'm the most famous queen ever <laughs> there was a mandarin duck um in west virginia that might have been two years ago too um a couple hours from me that mm. got a lot of attention and a small scale on a similar way. Yeah. Don't think there were any huge opportunities taken there. But. I gotta ask, <laughs> are these guys like 
escapees or they're like wild the mandarin ducks mandarin ducks yeah yeah they gotta be escapees escapees yeah because yeah. i saw some in the uk and everyone was like yeah they escaped somewhere. yeah i, I like, think okay. they're like feral Rotted. there like they're breeding yeah. there there's uh-huh. They're uh-huh. not in the u.s yet 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 yeah that and the killer hornets i want to <laughs> say i do really i really agree with uh andres's comment about sort of accountability for photographers and and bringing them into the world a little bit more you know yeah. for, a lot of photographers although we're sort of chasing the same birds um feel a part of a separate world you know they they're may not know to be aware of the code of ethics or mm-hmm. um, may not know exactly you know what it means to keep your distance you know they there's there's a reward for them to being as close as possible right mm-hmm. and it's a challenge but i think bringing bringing them in rather than sort of antagonizing is a way to help with just sort of group accountability that's a good point and may not be aware of the impact let's remember that a whole bunch of new photographers have been Mm -hmm. shown like super close-up images with no information on the background what is happening for years and by organizational photographers are capitalizing on that and so are they supposed to now behave different yeah yeah, don't ascribe to uh, to malice what can be explained by by ignorance. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. right. And, and they've been told that this is the, the legitimate way forward. At the right. same time, this is this is how you do it, and this is how you get traction and fame and likes. And so, I think there's a lot more compassion that needs to go around this idea. And when I say compassion, is a bit more curiosity on why they do things the way they do it. Yeah. So you're saying I need to share more of my really terrible bird photos so I can show what, <laughs> what the real situation is. <laughs> so we'll go to the we'll go to the question of the month this month, and it is sort of referring to a story that Andres you shared about. Yeah, uh, I love that story. <laughs> Kate, who is I got to make sure it's the right Kardashian. Kendall Jenner and Khloe Kardashian yes. saved a bird's life. Saved its life. This is like in mm. some ways the the mirror image of the Barry the Bard Owl story. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> apparently, a, the parallel universe. That's history, right. It's, you know, it's the other side. The upside down uh, history. <laughs> um, it was a, it was a, a sparrow got into their Malibu vacation home and they video ta- they video recorded. It's not taped. They taped it on their phone. Uh, of the bird getting <laughs> out. Apparently, yeah, they opened a patio window and it got out. Um, Good for them. They saved this bird. <laughs> it was one of those rare, rare, <laughs> uh, rare opportunities where celebrity culture and birding culture intersect. But I do want to, I do want to ask a question of you. Have you ever saved a bird's life? Well, hold on. What were they supposed to do? Like, what was the other option for them? Like, like swat it to death in the closet. <laughs> like, saving a bird. I mean, everybody. When a bird is inside, you open the door to get it out. I'm not, I, don't, I really want to avoid giving too much credit. What was the other option? <laughs> Just stomping on it, putting a little plate of seed out, and like keeping it as a pet. Sure. Okay. I guess that's another option. Or I mean, I, tr- I have done similar saving, quote unquote. I've. Uh, I remember in Austra- I was in Australia, Cairns, Australia. And uh, I was, we had birded uh, all day, but we were in a sort of souvenir shop right downtown uh, and a fantail flew in, a gray, I think a gray fantail flew in and all the shoppers were, you know, ducking down among the uh, merchandise. And, and I said, I will help here. So I chased this <laughs> fantail around with my hat uh, and finally caught it and ushered it out of the store. And I got <laughs> a, a standing ovation. I mean, You're a hero. Standing. 
Yeah. I was, everyone was standing already. Is that still a standing <laughs> ovation? If people are already standing up. But uh, it was a standing ovation. They gave me some free, they were so grateful that they gave me some free products. I, uh, so, wow. yeah, that's a, I, I assisted that bird in uh, getting back outside. Yeah. I think following up on Nick, that idea of what saving means yeah. here <laughs> needs to be challenged a bit. Yeah. But I do. And because Kendall Jenner and Chloe Kardashian are definitely going to listen to this, I mm. do want to <laughs> congratulate Kendall and Chloe on not only bringing a bird, a wild bird story into E entertainment. That's true. How many right, times enough. does that happen? Yep. But also helping the bird, which I think helping is a better description than helping. saving. Fair enough. Yeah. Have you have you helped the bird, Andres? I have many bird stories. One of the least remarkable of them was helping a chaffinch in the UK and chaffinches were so common. They were like, oh, dude, that's a chaffinch. And it was just kind of caught on a wire. And so I, I, I help it undo. And I have other more glorious ones. I run into an osprey that probably was migrating, oh, didn't have enough impressive. fat. And I just found it collapsed on a field in Costa Rica grabbed it somehow and <laughs> put it on a box and then I took it to a veterinarian and yeah and I have some other stories I used to do a lot of animal rescue and I yeah that's kind of one of my main passions in life rescuing animals mm -hmm. how about you Molly have you ever um helped a bird um solo yes I've opened the door for a bird in the house a couple times hero yeah um yeah over and over again. <laughs> um, there is a Carolina wren at my last house that kind of came in and out at will. So that was fun. Um, Sorry, over that cohabitation situation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that worked out pretty well. Um, but one, so I, I held off on this, but this is a story that I played a very small part in. But in the last snowy owl eruption, there was a snowy owl. There were a few snowy owls in West Virginia. One was in... I won't say an urban area. There aren't urban areas here, but it was in a town. <laughs> they had stoplights <laughs> and it was hanging out behind a Panera bread because there were tons of mice in the ditch. So it was just living off of mice mm -hmm. and rats there for a long time, um, just completely overwintering and happy there. So it had a lot of local celebrity attention. It was on the local news and that kind of thing. Eventually it got hit by a car. So um, it was on the, the Ohio border, but it had to be rehabbed in West Virginia. So it was a few hours away and went over with a few people to collect it um, to try to rehab it. It had an injured wing. Uh, and when we got there, it wasn't in the spot that it had been in all winter. So the only small part that I played in it was finding it again. It was like a mile down on a telephone pole. I could just see I was driving down the road and I could see some crows swooping down. Yeah. And just followed the crows and it was there. That got a lot of attention for the public on, you know, all sorts of wintering birds and all of that. It was rehabbed successfully and re-released. That's good. Um, so it, it was a really cool story all the way around and people followed its um, its path through there. And that's that's all I've got besides my Carolina wren and like hummingbird in the garage and that kind of thing. Yeah. My, mine is a hummingbird story as well. I um, In my pre-ABA life, I was a teacher assistant at Chapel Hill schools and uh, I was helping out the teachers before school started and one of the classrooms uh, was in like a little trailer off to the side of the main building and a hummingbird got in there and uh, they were like oh no how would we get this hummingbird out so um, I got a broom and I uh, 
Got Smack. the hummingbird. Smack no. it. Whacked it. Whacked it. I, I, for so, somehow the, no, the hummingbird. No, Nate. No, that's not what we meant. <laughs> this, is a, this is a terrible story. Um, the, yeah. Then you became a birder and that's a steward, right. and here you are. Yeah, atonement <laughs> changed me. This. Yeah, but uh, it was it was exhausted, and it, it just landed on the end of the broom, and uh, I brought it back, and I brought it out, and so what we were able to do. Because it wouldn't fly away because, you know, hummingbirds have super high metabolism. So we uh, went into the teacher room and we got some little sugar packets and we made a sugar mix water. with a water and sugar. Aww. And we uh, we fed it for a while and held it in my hand and it it drank out of a, a red solo cup and uh, eventually flew away. Like it got to the we did that for a few minutes and then it, and it was gone. So hmm. here's I hoping have a question. That it made it. Yeah, I have a question for the three of you. Mm -hmm. Did you ID the bird? Did you see the video and did you ID the bird? Yeah, I was going to talk about this too. No, I didn't watch the video. I you didn't, didn't watch the video. What about you, Nick? <laughs> I, I, Nate and I were talking. He said it was a house sparrow. I didn't see it myself. What did you think, Molly? I thought it was a house sparrow. I was watching it at the airport on my phone at double speed because I was like, <laughs> I, I don't need to spend time watching the Kardashians okay, I'm watching save it again. a bird. I'm, I'm, but <laughs> I chose that news because of the video, because of the species. And I want you to tell me what species it is. I think it's a song sparrow. I think oh. it's a song. I'm, look, I'm looking at it again, and but I think it's a song sparrow. More important, listen to the call that they put. Because oh no, I chose, and, and I want you to know, you guys probably know it better than me. Is that the call of a song sparrow? That is just a random sound that was downloaded for production purposes. And this is why I chose that news. Because it's totally it's, a song sparrow. The song? I don't know. I haven't. I've, I'm listening Listen to, to it without audio. sound. Listen to the video. audio next time. They just put chirping, like random chirpings from an audio. Oh yeah. Uh, from an audio library, and oh I'm, yeah, no, exactly. it's like it's like a generic bird sound. Generic bird sound. <laughs> yeah, deep, 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 deep. And then don't, with the wake canary or something. Yeah, yeah. That's why I went with that news because it was not only interesting that a bird makes it to 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 e entertainment but also <laughs> how fake it is. vocalization <laughs> oh yeah songs about right there audio in anything is fake it's oh like, it's all yeah. fake yeah. and it's all wrong that's the that's the thing and this is fascinating on how much it is produced and how much it is not real and can be misleading wait a second you don't think that this show is like not really real do you <laughs> it's reality <laughs> TV, Nick. Are, are we, is they that couldn't what you're call saying? it that oh, no. if it wasn't reality. Yeah. <laughs> Something from E Entertainment and this reality show applies to all the wildlife nature shows that we see. Oh, totally. And that yeah. thing you were saying, Nick, with a huge zoom, you don't get a single audio of what's happening there and all of it is fake. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised if there was some Song Sparrow handler in the back who releasing the thing. For, <laughs> this for is the what I'm wondering. Honestly, as well. <laughs> honestly, they're scraping the bottom of the barrel on what these people can do. Song at this Sparrow point. handler. Yeah. It's still Jenner and Chloe. I know you did a good thing when you were trying to help that yeah. bird and to help many people connect to birds in your Thank show. Thank you so much for your service. <laughs> Thanks to all three of you for, for joining me. Uh, please listen to The Warblers and also Life List. Um, I'll have links to uh, all their stuff in the show notes. Oh, and, and Nick's book. Please buy Nick's book. Nick, when I guess is your book I guess I a podcast, out? apparently. I guess yeah. I got to get on this train. <laughs> yeah. I think it's March 2022. So we got March a while to, uh, okay. to save your pennies now. Thanks to all three of you. This was fun. And uh, yeah, we'll see you around.
Thanks for having us. It was super Great. awesome. Thank you. It was. Thanks. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, the best way to do that is to join the ABA. You get our great magazines, you get discounts to our partners and travel opportunities with ABA staff and friends. It is definitely more than what you'd get from just normally supporting a podcast. To learn more, you can check out aba.org slash join. I have some shout outs to make this week. Thank you to Jenny Linton. Jenny Linton of Alameda, California, Kate Lowry of Lynchburg, Virginia, Kim Wilson of New Bedford, Massachusetts, Jonathan Marshall and his son Bruce of Black Mountain, North Carolina, Brian and Marie Helene Gukwa of Flushing, New York, Osta Tobiasen and Kara Bori of Gig Harbor, Washington, Jim McGinnity of Dunedin, Florida, and Linda Bishop whose location actually did not show up on the form that I'm reading, but she did leave a comment. She said she loved the podcast, the diverse topics, and the committed podcast host. So I hope she knows which Linda Bishop I'm talking about. Thank you so much for that. Thank you to all of you who recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason. It really does mean a lot to me and all of us here at the ABA. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeff Gordon, who knows that yes, birding probably can be considered a hobby, but a falconer who specializes in small Eurasian species could be said to have a hobby hobby. Technical production is by John Lowry, who thinks that those falconers who take in injured Eurasian falcons, you know, the ones that cannot fly well, could be said to have a wobbly hobby hobby. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who look down on those falconers who specialize in injured birds but prefer the African hobby to the Eurasian ones, you know, a snobby wobbly hobby hobby. You can find us online at aba.org or on social media as American Birding Association or ABA. One time I was traveling and I sat on the plane next to one of those Persian Gulf emirs who bought like an entire seat for his fancy falcon and he was sitting there and reading Lord of the Rings. He said he was a big fan. He'd actually named this bird Samwise Gamgee, which I thought was hilarious, even though he was kind of aloof, but he was certainly a snobby, wobbly, hobbit, hobby, hobby, based in Abu Dhabi. <sighs> Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swake. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.